The marriage of art and science can create both awe-inspiring beauty and harsh market realities. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco-innovations and explore current environmental issues. The documentary Meltdown is a study of the intersection of art and science set against the breathtaking canvas of the magnificent but fast-melting icebergs in Greenland. It features the work of renowned glacier photographer Lynn Davis and the insight of Yale climate scientist Anthony Lizerwitz. And we're happy to have Anthony join us here on GreenSense. Anthony, welcome. Uh, great. Thanks to be here. Well, you've been a climate scientist for decades. Uh, when you were younger and they asked what you wanted to do, did you tell them that you wanted to be a climate scientist? Tell us how and why you got involved with this. <laughs> uh, so my own personal stories, I actually started off as an international relations major. I, I had, this was back in the uh, Cold War days. I thought I had a long career ahead of me keeping uh, the US and the Soviet Union and China from blowing each other up. But six months before I graduated from uh, undergraduate college, uh, my, uh, the Berlin Wall came down and my international relations degree turned into a history degree like that. So, uh, so I ended up in Aspen, Colorado following a friend and there I ended up with a full-time job at a, a wonderful research institution called the Aspen Global Change Institute. And I was there for four years, basically learning from the world's leading climate scientists, uh, gathered from all different fields from all over the world. And it was just this incredible education. Uh, and this was about 1990. And it changed my life. I mean, it, I, I suddenly came to understand what this issue was. Even back then, we had very clear understanding of what was coming. And I'm sad to say that 30 years later, uh, our, uh, all of those predictions have pretty much come true, and, and in some cases, even worse. So, uh, so anyway, out of that experience, I then kept asking or coming back to the question of, so, you know, here's how the natural system works, but why do we have this problem in the first place? And uh, what is it about human beings that gets us into these kinds of problems? And that's what led me back to graduate school and subsequently has been the question animating my whole career of really trying to understand what are the psychological, the cultural, the political factors that drive human perception, decision-making, and behavior. And so we've spent, I've been here at Yale for 14 years, really trying to answer that question, both here in the United States and around the world. Wow, what a fantastic uh, passion. Uh, as an early adopter, you've been really quick to recognize the impacts of climate change. Do you feel like you're watching a train wreck, you know, seeing something bad happen and, and you really can't stop it? No, I, I don't like the metaphor of a train wreck because that I mean, you can't stop a train wreck, right? The whole point of a runaway train is that it's a runaway train. And that's not the case here. Uh, this is more like a car that's, you know, if you want to stick with the analogies, we're like a car that's coming down a mountain on a very uh, windy road. Uh, nobody's buckled. Uh, we're playing with a radio, eating a hamburger on the other side. The kids are in the back. They're not buckled. Uh, we're passing all these warning signs uh, from scientists saying there's twisty road up ahead, you need to slow down, there's landslides up ahead, there's boulders up ahead, and we have our foot not on the brake but on the gas. Um, so the Sounds like a car now, wreck to me. <laughs> well, so my point though is that this issue has now become unstoppable. We're not going to stop climate change, but we can limit climate change. And there's a huge difference between hitting that windy patch of road with boulders on it at 10 miles an hour, where there'll be some body damage and we might get whiplash, but uh, the alternative is to hit it at 80 miles an hour. And I think that's really the choice that we have fully within our control is to start putting on the brakes now. 
and I could buy that, but also you've been at this for 30 years and you've just seen it get worse. People are not taking action. And so uh, that, that's the point that we wanna sort of focus on is this documentary I think is very inspiring and hopefully it can lead to action. I've been to both Iceland and Alaska. I've per personally witnessed glaciers. They looked anemic and deflated. <laughs> And it's amazing uh, to see the vast size of these ice formations and how powerful the ice and the meltwater are and how they could un uh, shape the underlying geomorphology. This was your first trip to Greenland. What was the most important lesson and takeaway you had from that? I've been studying Greenland from afar for 30 years. There's nothing like actually going and seeing this for yourself, you know, feel, actually touching the ice, walking on the ice, observing what's happening, watching it moving and watching it breaking off this ice sheet and then floating out into the ocean where of course it's going to melt and ultimately contribute to sea level rise. So part of it is just the, as a human being, being able to see this in action, uh, which is going to have such far reaching consequences for the entire world as, as I like to say, you know, what stays in the, or what starts in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. Well, likewise, what happens in Greenland doesn't stay in Greenland. It's going to affect everybody uh, on some level. But that's coupled with this other thing is that I was traveling with this world renowned art photographer who had been coming back to this same area for 30 years, not to study climate change, but because these icebergs are gorgeous. They are just spectacularly beautiful. And so I got to then experience this same landscape, which is a landscape of tragedy and even portending, portences, or portending doom but see it through her eyes as well of what an incredible, beautiful part of, nat of the natural world this is at the same time. And so it's really, that's kind of what we're, we're playing with here in this film. It's not a science documentary. It's not an advocacy film. It's not a Hollywood blockbuster. It's an artist and a scientist coming together at this ground zero of climate change and really kind of working through this question of what does it mean to be alive at this time surrounded by such beauty, which at the same time represents such tragedy. So the person you're speaking about is Lynn Davis and many people have photographed uh, Greenland. What makes her photography so special? So she came at it originally as an art photographer in New York City where she uh, pioneered uh, photographs, sculptural photographs almost of the human form like really looking at the human body in very different ways than you know, you, what you would normally see. Um, and through the course of the film, and I won't uh, reveal some of the, the narrative, but uh, she ultimately was led to Greenland out of a sense of her own loss and tragedy in her life and, uh, and discovered that the ice itself has this same kind of sculptural magnificent quality that she was finding in the human form. And that just kept bringing her back over and over again to this very remote, corner of the world that nobody was going to, uh, which just so happened to ultimately be the fastest disintegrating glacier in the Northern Hemisphere. So she kind of was an inadvertent chronicler of climate change over three decades. Uh, most serious photographers, you know, you see them carrying lots of gear around. In Meltdown, Lynn is often seen with just maybe an old, one old-fashioned camera, one lens, and very little else. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yes. No, so so Lynn is, comes from the old school of photography. So she's using, in the film, she's using a medium format and she would sometimes use a large format camera. And these are like, I mean, this is film. She still uses film, even in today's world. Wow. No zoom lenses, uh, holding this box basically with a, either a medium or large format film in it 
in the, you know, with the, the camera, she's using an old Roloflex, uh, you only get 12 shots. Uh, and then you have to replace all the film. So this is not for sports and action photography. This is like what Ansel Adams uh, kind of photography would do. You, you're really composing. You have to really look at the, at the scene and click that shutter when it is just perfect. And yet imagine she's doing this on the ocean, on a boat that's moving, where the ice is moving, where the sun and the clouds are moving, and it's all shifting and changing literally second by second. And out of that, she just develops these unbelievably gorgeous photos that she blows up to full like wall size. Well, in the documentary, she talks about ice being impermanent, uh, how it's ever changing. And you point out how the climate is ever changing. Again, a great marriage of art and science. How much control do we have in arresting or reversing these forces of melting ice and changing climate? You know, we well, talked about a train wreck. You feel like we're not on it. Tell us how we're going to reverse that. Yeah, so the thing is that there's so many things that we can do and, in fact, are already beginning to do. So just in the past 10 years, I mean, 10 years ago, you know, clean energy was a great idea, but it certainly wasn't available. It wasn't around. It wasn't something that people could readily buy. Uh, and it was much more expensive than the traditional fossil fuels. That's not true anymore. Wind power, solar power is now cheaper than fossil fuels. That's a radical shift in what is now happening. And that's why we're seeing that clean energy is the, one of the fastest growing sectors of the economy before COVID. And this is now, of course, happening everywhere. So, uh, and in fact, it's going to have to be critically done. The world is, of course, still growing. We're, the Many countries in the world are going to be building giant cities that don't exist today, um, just in the next couple of decades. How are they going to power those cities? Uh, this is the chance, the one chance we get to get it right. So anyway, there's a lot that's going on, both from the individual level all the way up to the global scale. But it's a race against time. Well, I appreciate your optimism. And I agree that we don't have a lot of time left. And people have acknowledged this, but now we have to do something. Uh, you talk about glaciers being eaten from underneath. Uh, explain what you mean. Yeah, so you often think, okay, the world is warming, therefore, you know, the warmer air is melting the, the ice from up above. And, and it is doing that. And, and that is actually an important process. But what we've also come to realize is that about 90% of the heat that's being trapped by global warming, by this thickening blanket of carbon pollution that we've put into the atmosphere, trapping heat, 90% um, of that heat is going into the ocean, not to the land, into the ocean. And as a result, the oceans are warming up. And what that means is that you get these currents of warmer and warmer water that are flowing into these fjords on which these glaciers are floating, right? And they're floating on this fjord and, and the water is coming down or coming underneath and it's actually eating, under, you know, eating from underneath and destabilizing the front of those glaciers, which then causes them to calve. And as they calve, that helps pull more of the land ice, the ice that's on the land, out into the ocean. And of course, it's that land-based ice that when it gets into the ocean and melts, actually increases sea level rise uh, or sea levels around the world. Greenland is a small island relatively, uh, and it's inaccessible to many. Would you say that this is the canary in the coal mine, a microcosm of what's happening to the global climate? Uh, I would say it's, again, one of the ground zeros of, of impacts. But Unfortunately, today is 
climate change impacts are right here, right now in every corner of the world, including right here where I live in Connecticut, right wherever you are. I mean, it is everywhere. So in that sense, we're all living climate change now. This isn't just happening off at the, at the poles or you know, to polar bears or to developing countries. This is everywhere, including right here in the United States. So the $64,000 question, uh, what can inv individuals do locally to impact global climate change? Yeah, well, there's so much, right? I mean, there's things- <laughs> Well, that's good. <laughs> well, but there, and there are, I mean, look, and, and it depends on what you're able to do. So it's not like everybody has to do the same thing. Something, some people wanna do things within their, the sphere of their own family, their own household. And there's so much you can do from, you know, thinking about the diet that you're eating to where you're uh, getting your electricity. You can get 100% clean electricity in almost every part of the country, but most people haven't gone out and done the little bit of research it takes to, to buy 100% clean electricity instead of fossil fuel-based energy. If you've got more money, you can think about putting solar panels on your roof and actually saving money you know, after you've paid them off after about five years. Uh, and so you're actually making money in the end, right? Uh, electric vehicles are about to just explode out there. And so you could be part of that huge transition. But then there's the stuff that's really important and that's the larger systemic change, which again can start local. You can get your kids' teachers to start teaching about climate change. You can go to your local school board and say, we need to start addressing this issue right here. Uh, you can go to your local community, your local mayor, your local town council and say, we need to take action collectively. And of course, the most important thing then is expressing your demand for action to our elected officials at the state level and at the national level. Because in the end, this is going to take big, concerted, bold action at certainly at the state and federal level to do the systemic change that we all need. Well, those are great action items that people can implement. Um, there's a popular proverb that says the best time to plant a tree is 30 years ago. The second best time is now. And in the film, you mentioned that in the U.S., uh, the problem isn't a lack of awareness, but a lack of concern. And we should have acted 30 years ago. The film helps raise the concern. What kind of action has the movie inspired? What we're hoping it does is that it gets people to think about climate change in a much more concrete and visceral way. This is an issue that for years has been seen by most Americans as a very distant abstract problem. Okay, distant in time that the impacts won't be felt for a generation or more or distant in space. This is about polar bears in developing countries, but not us. Um, what we wanted to do is go straight to the, one of the primary sources and often gets talked about, right? Melting ice. And that's such an abstraction, right? What does melting ice really mean? And moreover, most people don't really spend that much time watching ice melt. It doesn't really draw our attention. Uh, what we wanted to do is ultimately try to bring meaning to that, okay? And that's really what people are hungry for is, what does this really mean? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for the people that are there? How do we make sense of our place on the planet at this time? And those are the themes that we're really uh, working through as part of this film. What kind of a reception has the movie uh, uh, gotten? I, I've been really gratified with the very positive response from lots of people from across the spectrum. Um, young and old, uh, you know, longtime uh, scar-filled, uh, you know, climate warriors to people who really didn't know much about climate change at all. And it's really, in, I mean, I'm really happy that so many different types of people, even from those that really know this issue very well to those that barely know much about climate change at all, 
are each finding something really powerful. In it. And that I, I think that's really a, a testament to the storytelling. Of well, the, we think the uh, time has come. It's long overdue. Uh, the film Meltdown was produced by the same people who produced the very popular Last Dance series on the 1990 Chicago Bulls. I'm from Chicago, and I thought that was a great series. And kudos to those producers of Last Dance. It helped many of us uh, sports fans get through a shelter-in-place uh, COVID winter by offering an inside look to the Bulls at a time when there were no sporting events on TV. Um, so how did all of you come together to work on Meltdown? Yeah, it's, uh, and I agree. The Last Dance is a wonderful series. Right. Um, and, and I'm saying that as someone from Michigan who did not like the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, those Pacers, uh, those Pistons, uh, we had right. some battles, didn't we? That's right. we had some <laughs> um, so really, it was one of the directors was uh, needed to buy a photograph for a new apartment in New York City and <laughs> happened to walk into this gallery featuring Lynn's work and was immediately just like blown away, just like, oh, I've got to have this. And he was so impressed. He wanted to know the backstory. Who is this artist? You know, what was, why was she here? And so the gallery owner introduced him to, uh, to Lynn and he heard her story. He was just like, oh my God, this is amazing. I want to tell this story on film. Can we take you back to Greenland? And she had basically given up going back to Greenland because the ice itself had changed so much in that 30 years. Uh, and she said, okay, I'll do it, but I don't know anything about climate change. You've got to take somebody who knows what they're talking about with me. And uh, Actually, I think it wasn't anything more complicated than a Google search. Uh, they ended up with my name, and basically they had me at hello. Um, so, yeah, so the rest wow. is... Wow, what serendipity. <laughs> uh, what was it like working with the crew? Uh, with the crew? Yeah, the film yeah, crew. I mean, I'd never worked on a documentary before, so it was really uh, amazing to see what happens behind the scenes, right? You only see what happens on the screen, but... You know, there's sound people and there's different photographers and there's someone who's operating a drone and then there's the people who are doing the boats and it's, it's a whole operation. And, and yet what they're trying to do is to ultimately get us as the protagonists and the landscape, which is this incredibly beautiful but constantly changing landscape. You know, we've all, we were only there in Greenland for seven to ten days. That's it. That's your shot. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. And we actually got incredibly lucky because up to that moment, there had been very little ice uh, coming out of the glacier. Uh, and literally the day before I got there, there was just, just massive release of, uh, of ice that came pouring out of the fjord. And so we had so, and we had just an incredible, uh, complicated and, and yet beautiful iceberg-filled landscape to, to work with. In the film, Lynn Davis talks about the, how the glaciers have changed over 10 years because of climate change. Uh, what do you hope a documentary 10 years from now would look like? In the same place? Yes. Oh, well, I mean, look, the scientist in me knows that it's going to continue. But again, the question is what speed and at what point does that process stop? Um, so I would expect going back that we're going to see much of the same. Um, I, I would assume we'll still see icebergs pouring in because let's remember Greenland is massive. So we're not, we're not going to be running out of ice in the next 10 years. Um, but it's that. And of course, we didn't even talk about all the land-based ice like up in the mountains. And then, of course, the Antarctica, which is the big, big chunk of ice on this planet, which is also melting. So you put all that together. And of course, this all has huge consequences, as we talked about before, uh, around the world. 
Well, we were very lucky. Uh, we interviewed James Baylog about his documentary, Chasing Ice, uh, when it first aired. Uh, we went to the preview, too. Uh, and it, it's an amazing set of photography uh, of ice that really stirs your soul. When you look at his pictures, uh, they're just phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, and, and Chasing Ice documents the team's struggle to place time-lapse cameras in brutal Arctic uh, conditions uh, to photograph a multi-year record of the world's changing glaciers. Um, he was a non-believer in climate change when he started his work, uh, as he told us during the interview, and was converted after witnessing firsthand the decline of glaciers. Uh, his closing words of wisdom to us in the interview were, don't believe or disbelieve in climate change, use science to make sound decisions. Based on your experience, any closing thoughts for our listeners? Hmm. Well, uh, first of all, James, a great friend, and I highly recommend Chasing Ice if viewers haven't seen it. It's a different kind of film about ice. It's usually doing time-lapse photography. So it's not art photography, it's time-lapse photography, it's science-based photography, which really helps you see how quickly they're in fact collapsing and moving. I, I think the last thing I would just say is that yes, this is about Greenland, which is a really special and as I hope I've conveyed, a beautiful, beautiful place. But really what I want uh, listeners to do is to start looking for the signs of climate change where you live, because it is here and now. It's not just in the backyard, it's not just in the front yard, it's literally in the basement. So, uh, you know, as much as I want people to appreciate this special part of the world, and it really is special, this issue is happening to all of us everywhere. So uh, it's time to get busy. Anthony, I really enjoyed speaking with you and I, I love your passion. I hope we aren't in a train wreck and we can change things. Uh, so maybe we'll have you back on in 10 years and hopefully those uh, glaciers aren't melting. <laughs> Great. Great to be with you. That's Yale climate scientist, Anthony Lizerwitz, talking about the documentary Meltdown. It's available for rent or purchase on a number of streaming services, including Amazon, Apple iTunes, Vudu, Xfinity, and other cable networks nationwide. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is GreenSense. Subscribe to our podcast at greensensefarms.com and check out the GreenSense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM WBBM Chicago.